In this podcast, we're talking about sex in an explicit and honest way. You might hear the occasional bit of strong language. It's also worth mentioning that I'm a survivor of sexual assaults, and this is something I'll be mentioning throughout the series. In this episode specifically, we'll be hearing from another survivor about their experiences. Please be kind to yourself while listening. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or are looking for support for any of the themes discussed, check the episode description for resources and helplines. We spend so much of our time thinking about all of the different ways in which sexuality and porn could be potentially damaging to us or could be dangerous often and never really think about the ways or the things that it gives us. And I think sex is such a, an intrinsic part of the human experience, you know, whether or not it's something you engage with or not, it's it's part of our society and it's part of the fabric of what makes us human. And the idea that, you know, we spend so much of our time pushing that away and removing it from our experience of the world instead of thinking about the ways in which it can kind of infuse and inform and give us a new perspective, we're really losing something. When I say the word porn, what comes to mind? If I had to guess, I'd imagine you'd be thinking of slim bodies bouncing around in harsh lighting, and everything is exaggerated from the fantasies to the noises to the body parts, and it probably doesn't look much like the sex that you're having. This is mainstream porn. It's probably what would come up if you typed the word porn into Google, and it's also likely many of our first introductions to this world. Sex is already a taboo subject, and porn even more so. But by not talking about it, we are unable to acknowledge how impactful it is, for good or for bad. All art and entertainment, porn included, is a window into our society. And by neglecting porn, we stop ourselves having the important conversations. I'm Ruby Rare. I'm a sex educator and author, and this is In Touch a documentary series offering an intimate and playful education around the different ways that we connect to sex, relationships and our bodies. For most of us, our relationship to porn is very secretive, just us and the dim light of our phone screen. Which is interesting given the fact that every single one of us has a relationship to porn, whether we watch it or not. We've already unpacked some of the ways that pornography can impact young people in our episode on sex education, but in this episode, we'll be exploring this world from an adult's perspective. As far back as I can kind of remember, I was always pretty fascinated with sex. I remember probably my initial introduction to it would have been, I was maybe around about 10 or 11 and we had a house computer I couldn't think of a better way to start this episode than hearing from Vex Ashley, the woman behind creative pornography project Four Chambers. The porn Vex makes is weird and arty and really challenges those images of mainstream porn we spoke about from the start. Her films show bodies writhing around and you really get a sense of flesh and texture, but there's also a lot of unexpected imagery in there. One film in particular intercuts human bodies with slugs, snails and the fleshy innards of flowers, which in theory shouldn't work, but is so erotically charged it gave me a whole new perspective on garden wildlife. 
it was at a point where you couldn't really search for porn. You had to sort of just find a URL and you'd type it in. So there was all kinds of different ones that were these sort of vintagey kind of like old style porn sites. I didn't have a specific kind of thing that I was interested in or looking for. It was just everything. I just found the whole thing kind of fascinating. And I don't remember it necessarily being something that felt massively kind of sexual other than the kind of idea that I was doing something that was a little bit wrong or a little bit naughty. But I just remember kind of wanting to learn and wanting to kind of soak up all of this new information that felt like a whole world that wasn't really like available to me at this time. The first site that I really remember using with any degree of kind of regularity was literotica.com. Literotica.com had all of the weird stuff. If you, you know, all of the taboo stuff, all of the stuff that would definitely not ever exist on a porn site, you know, you can't put it on film, but you can write about it. As it turns out, Vex and I were browsing Literotica at around the same time. I didn't even know that erotic fiction existed at the time. I was just trying to find porn, and Google searches were not as advanced as they are now. It's basically a vast library of smut, written and uploaded by people around the world. Any fantasy I was having, there was a story there for me. As a teenager, there was a lot of shame attached to watching visual porn, and it felt almost too real. But with written porn, I got to use my imagination more to fill in the gaps. Literotica became my pornographic bible, and it's still a genuinely important part of my life. And the nostalgia from it is definitely helped by the fact that the actual website design has barely changed since 2006. Not everyone has this sort of experience when it comes to their first encounter with porn. When I was in my early teens, the internet was still incredibly clunky, and so I had to actively go out of my way to find porn. But increasingly, this is something that young people will stumble upon by accident while online. And that can be overwhelming, and at its worst, really scary and damaging. These moments stick with us and can be really formative in the way that we view porn and sex in general. There's a lot of porn that depicts sex in a violent way, and even when that porn has been made in a consensual and regulated environment, how much of that is getting translated to the person watching it? Like all entertainment industries, there is so much that goes on behind the scenes that we're unaware of. Lena Bembe is a porn performer and director. I wanted to know some of the prevalent misconceptions that she has experienced from those outside of the industry. It's really paradoxical that porn can be so available to everyone and at the same time so wildly misunderstood. I think that we can start like, with the usual cliches about the industry, that the people who do it are like somehow uh, traumatized folks who are like completely lost in their path in life and that's the only thing they have left to do. Also, like a massive misconception is that porn is a business that makes you rich. When you are in this and you look around you, everyone is just like trying to make ends meet. In so many ways, porn workers can be really invisible on the internet. It's very difficult to put that message across or to be listened by a big majority of people or for people to understand how this works and how difficult it is. With any industry, once you're looking from the inside out, things are so much more complicated and nuanced. When our view of porn is limited to the preconceptions we have in our heads, it's no wonder that we think there's nothing more to dig into. 
mainstream porn, it's basically a catch-all term for what people consider to be probably like what they would see when they click on the first page of a tube site. And it's actually changed quite a lot, just even in the time that I've been making porn, you know, what's considered mainstream porn or what I would consider the mainstream has actually changed quite a lot. And it's actually, I think, a lot more fluid than we give it credit for. That's the only thing that people see or that they access, which is straight porn made for men who want to see pretty girls having sex with guys with big dicks. That is fine. And that should exist in the expansive world of sexuality. But I think the issue really comes when that's the only thing that people feel like they can access. And that's the only thing that they see. And then that becomes accepted as normal. And anything outside of that is considered sexuality that is weird or wrong or not part of the status quo. There's no one type of sexuality really that is kind of better than any other. What we need is to be able to delight in, access, explore and experience. Sexuality and porn made for all different kinds of experiences, all different kinds of people in a way that means that one kind of sex doesn't become default And because porn is made to make money and the only people who are paying for porn still really with any degree of kind of regularity are straight guys who are, you know, prepared to open their wallets. A lot of the porn that's being made because it's the porn that can get funding is porn for those people. And it doesn't mean that that porn is bad. It just means that we need more porn that doesn't necessarily look like that. It all comes down to money. While it's become normal to subscribe and pay for music and TV streaming services, there's still this expectation that porn is something we are entitled to access for free. As Vex says, the reason why so much pornography is catering to a straight male gaze is because for so long, this has been the main audience and the main group who are prepared to pay. Many people's first foray into porn will be what they find on the landing page of a tube site. Free tube sites became popular in the late 2000s, and this sudden availability of porn to anyone with an internet connection massively changed the way people consumed porn and viewed sex. Three of the most popular porn sites globally, which are massive platforms, are owned by one elusive company called MindGeek. Through advertising, they're able to profit off the videos uploaded many of which are stolen content from other porn companies. And on top of this, I think the fact that one company monopolises so much of the industry means they have a worrying amount of control over what we tend to see on these platforms, which subliminally shapes our desires. It's no secret that our attention spans are getting shorter. So whether it's on Pornhub or any social media platform, it's in all of these companies' best interests to show us really attention-grabbing stuff that's clickbaity in nature which is why we've seen such a rise in titles on tube sites that have very graphic and long-winded titles. And as much as I don't love this, I find it really fascinating because I get it. I'm a lot less likely to click on A Night to Remember compared to Hot Milf Squirt Compilation 3. Not because it's better, but because it's significantly more attention-grabbing. So while other types of pornography is out there, it may be harder to find for someone first entering that space. Profits are monopolised by a select few who are also controlling what's at the fore. So it's increasingly difficult for smaller, independent porn companies to exist online. Lena, why do you think that people are still so reluctant to pay for porn? 
The stigma around porn, I think that in many ways makes people to regard porn as this lower, trashy kind of product and they consume, I don't know, like literature or music or films and so on and they're more eager to pay for that because they somehow perceive that that's something that it's going to bring something to them, whether it is like entertainment or whether it is knowledge. I think that porn can totally be into that sort of categories, you know? But because we see porn as something that it's like wrong, that's something that you should be ashamed of, I think collectively we do not have like any high regards for porn at all. If I care about the books that I read, the music that I listen, why wouldn't I care about the explicit sexuality that I consume? In many cases, this isn't something that you can openly talk about. I guess that in many occasions you, you can't even barely admit that you watch porn or that you have watched porn. For me, the most alarming factor is the fact that people just don't have any sort of regards for pornography as a compelling medium that has a lot to say, basically. And that, that, that can potentially be very important for many people, you know? Helping people build a better understanding about how their fantasies and desires and sexualities work. I think that if we had like a different approach to pornography, to explicit sexuality, to how it works, to what can it potentially bring us, people will have like a higher regard for porn and will be more eager to pay for it. And it's not just the reluctance to pay for porn as consumers. There are so many technical barriers for people to get paid. Even if someone is paying for porn, the amount of money that actually ends up with the creators is a whole other story. I knew that this was complicated, but until speaking to Vex, I had no idea how much of a logistical nightmare it can be. I think people don't realise quite how difficult it is to actually set up to make porn independently of a company like Pornhub or a company like OnlyFans, you know, because you can't use PayPal, you can't use Cash App, you can't use Venmo. You know, I have to use an adult industry payment processor, which takes a really big chunk of the money that I make. It's like between 15 and 20% of all of the money goes just to the bank processing it. And if I was able to use Square or a different thing, it would be something like 5% maybe. So it's all incredibly expensive. It's incredibly bureaucratic and it essentially is there to make it difficult for people to do things independently. Over the past years, we've seen the censorship on sites like Tumblr and Instagram escalate massively in a way that specifically targets sex workers and even just people talking about sex. In 2018, my Instagram account was taken down without warning because of my sex education content. The realisation that such an important part of your work can just be taken down with no warning is like having the rug pulled from under you. I know it might sound trivial, but it was really destabilising. Four years on, and that experience still affects me. What happened to me is just a knock-on effect of the much more brutal censorship that sex workers and porn performers face. This censorship of creators caused a huge drive to other sites such as OnlyFans which saw a massive boom during the pandemic, going from 8 million users in 2019 to 130 million in mid-2021. But once again, the reliance on the support of a site can make life vulnerable. Even OnlyFans dangled the threat of entirely banning sexually explicit content from the platform in August of 2021, despite having been made so popular by sex workers and creators. And as Vex pointed out, 
you're still giving up a large amount of your control and finances. OnlyFans take 20% of creators' revenue. So while there's hope that paying for porn is becoming more commonplace, the spaces are still complicated. So there's major issues that need to be solved from the top down, but there's also an onus on us as consumers. Rufai is an intimacy coordinator who's worked in the film industry in front of and behind the camera for over 10 years. Ethics doesn't just lie at the production side, paying for your porn or where you kind of source your porn from and stuff like that. If we continue as consumers to not need to worry about where the production of the porn or the safety of performers, then yeah, that also I think contributes to the whole ethical discussion. There was a great discussion um, at the Berlin Porn Film Festival, I think in 2018, by a collective called Meow Meow Films. They talk about paying for your porn, but particularly for the productions that they do, where we have to also acknowledge that there are a lot of working class or working poor, struggling people out there. So paying for your porn, does it just become a luxury product? Does pleasure just become that kind of consumption? Does it just become, you know, for people who can afford it? So I think that kind of awareness really kind of changed my thinking about the whole, you know, paying for your porn. How much of the percentage of, you know, paying for your porn goes to the performers or the workers? If only 20% goes or, you know, 5% and 80% goes to the studio as well, <laughs> then who is really benefiting from, you know, pay for your porn? That whole kind of slogan. So it is more complicated than just pay for your porn. But I still think it's a useful mantra to begin with as what I want to see is a real cultural change in the way we think about porn. I hate that this is the case, but paying for things does tend to shift our perception of its value, and through that, we're able to engage with it more critically. Paying for porn can also be a way of putting our money where our mouths are when it comes to ethical concerns. One of the biggest criticisms of porn is the objectification of bodies, particularly those of marginalised identities, and the racism and fetishization that is embedded into the culture of free tube sites. From the language used to categorize this content to the actual videos, browsing these sites can easily leave people feeling uncomfortable about themselves. Often those very difficult conversations to do with like sexism and racism and misogyny, they're more prevalently uh, at the forefront in porn than they are in society. So in porn, the kind of inherent fetishization of black men is very much at the forefront of porn because we haven't had that complicated cultural conversation about it. It's kind of been allowed to exist unchecked. We're like, well, it's just porn. No, either nobody cares about it or it's like, well, it's all disgusting anyway. But in society, it doesn't mean that that doesn't exist. And I think that's kind of because we haven't treated porn with the same degree of cultural worth as we do literature or film or TV, porn, we just dismiss it to the trash heap and kind of allow those things to kind of go on unchecked. We should like critique all of the media that we're consuming through the lens of feminism and anti-racist practice. Porn is not exempt from that. Sadly, these are not problems that are unique to porn. What makes it unique is the stigma that separates porn from wider cultural conversations. And when these things go unchecked, it can profoundly impact how we view ourselves and the expectations that we have on the people around us. Leanne runs Polyphilia, 
an online platform talking about polyamory. We discussed how archaic porn tropes have filtered into their personal experiences of sex and dating. My first exposure to porn was probably through erotic fanfiction. I consider myself quite lucky that fanfiction was doing so much for me. I was like having actual sex before I started kind of watching visual porn. And I feel like if I had started watching visual porn first before I started having sex, that would have had a significant impact on how I performed in the bedroom. Because as a Chinese person, it's much easier to kind of imagine yourself in a situation of you're watching someone who looks like you, right? And I found a lot of porns that involved Asian people quite distasteful. You know, like a lot of the Asian women were always really hyper feminine and the sounds that they were making sound like mewling kittens. And it was just very off-putting to me. And so I'm glad that I had that level of insight to recognize that this was problematic and this was not something that I should be aspiring to doing and that I could just do my own thing and, you know, my race doesn't have to come into it. I feel that porn has informed quite a lot of the cultural zeitgeist, I guess, like when it comes to cultural perceptions of like certain groups and marginalized folks. I kind of envy that Leanne had an understanding of sex before porn came into their life. This was not the case for me, and I'm not alone in that. According to the British Board of Film Classification, more than half of 14 to 15 year olds have seen porn. And for most young people, their first time watching porn was accidental. Obviously, it's really hard to prove stuff like this, and I would guess it's way more than half. We're in an age where most people will have watched porn before they even do anything sexual with another person. So any negative or stereotypical depictions of people or sex will invariably be shaping our desires and how we treat each other. I have had one or two people match me on Tinder. Like one guy, his first message to me was, can I add you to my Asian collection? And I was just like, sorry, what? In what world did you think that that would be like a good first message to send to someone on Tinder? How do you think the other person is just not going to block you after that? So I do have an issue with people going, you're attractive because you're Asian and the implication of that is because you'll be submissive or because you'll make really high-pitched noises when we're having sex or because I'd like you to dress up like a cat girl. I realized that I was bi around kind of when I was like 18, 19. And I find it really weird that bisexuality and kind of lesbian sex is so fetishized and eroticized. I think queer women kind of struggle with this quite a lot because this affection and sexualization and eroticization of our bodies is so normalized that like when we actually express agency and our own desires, we can't even recognize that within ourselves. I just have an issue with people seeing like one aspect of my identity as what defines my entire self and then projecting their own assumptions and internal biases and that kind of thing like onto me instead of actually getting to know me as a person. It's that dehumanizing experience of being seen as like the Asian, like the bisexual. The prevalence of girl on girl action in porn definitely invalidated my own sexuality because most of the time, it's being performed for men rather than explored and celebrated in its own right. All of the porn I watched as a teenager was made for the male gaze. And I didn't watch any made by and for queer folks until my early 20s, which was really formative in me finally coming out. So while pockets of mainstream porn kept me in the closet, I also have porn to thank for allowing me to explore and see my queerness as valid. Like so many things taking place on the internet, we have yet to get a real handle on pornography and the effects it could be having. Porn has become an empowering and joyful part of my sexuality. But that's something I had to work quite hard to get to. Because I can't deny the fact that initially, porn didn't make me feel great about myself. And of course, 
What I'm talking about here is the regulated porn world. Things get significantly more complicated when it comes to outright unethical practices. Porn that is shot in a regulated environment where workers' rights are respected and consent is a crucial part of the conversation is not the same as videos of people who have been coerced or trafficked. I've seen many people treat regulated porn and sex trafficking, a form of modern slavery, as one in the same, as a way to justify anti-porn stances. To me, these are two separate issues and we do both a disservice when we conflate them. There is regulation when it comes to pornography. In the UK, technically you have to be over 18 to watch porn and it is illegal to sell porn to anyone under the age of 18. And it goes without saying that any content containing under 18s, non-consensual acts, or that is shared without explicit permission is sexual violence, and it's a crime. But sadly, just because something is illegal, it doesn't stop it from happening. In December 2020, YouTube site Empire MindGeek was sued for posting non-consensual content on their platforms. And this is just one of many allegations and lawsuits against the company. The internet is such a vast and complicated space, and currently, regulation only goes so far. I made a decision to form a healthy relationship with porn. For me, that involved saying goodbye to free tube sites, doing my own research to find porn that really spoke to me, and attending community events where porn was seen as an art form and celebrated. There are valid criticisms of porn, the way it's made and the accessibility of it. One way to address some of these issues could be through what is known as ethical porn. I wanted to know how Rufi defined this themselves. The road to building ethical porn starts and ends with prioritising the voices and labour rights of sex workers and porn performers. I think an important thing to note is like, you can never just arrive at ethical. It's a continual strive to be better. I think first off, it's, you know, sometimes recognising if there is a power imbalance in the room, if someone is in the position of power. So like, maybe if you are performing with another performer who also is a director, addressing that. When I entered the industry, it was very much like I was following direction from production companies or directors. And if those directors might have had unethical working practices, I would have fallen victim to those. I just took their word as gospel, like, oh, this is how the industry works. But like many buzzwords, the more the term ethical porn is used, the more watered down its definition can become. The phrase ethical porn I feel like has been kind of reduced to a little bit of a kind of advertising buzzword for companies who want to essentially say, oh, we're not like those other bad porn companies. We are hashtag ethical porn. The difficulty is, is that ethics are inherently subjective and related to your own personal idea of what morality is, what your cultural kind of consciousness is, and they change and vary wildly from person to person. So to say you're ethical porn, it's ethical for who and by which standards. Being ethical in any kind of industry is a constantly evolving process, and none of us get it right all the time. When it comes to ethical porn, there is still scope for getting it wrong. But it's about how we learn and make changes that's important. Erica Lust runs one of the biggest ethical porn film companies, working with a wide variety of people within the industry. And in 2018, Rufai was allegedly sexually assaulted on set by a guest director, Olympe de G. 
They pointed out the lack of structure for accountability within the organisation for managing sexual violence on set. It culminated in a peaceful, professional mediation, with Erica Lust and Rufai acknowledging and apologising for any harm caused. Conversations are still ongoing between the guest director and Rufai. I was really grateful to speak to Rufai about this experience and their thoughts now on ethical porn. We had an eight-month-long restorative justice mediation process where we kind of laid out the conflict that we had, our side of the story, what really hurt us and where we were coming from. And that left me feeling really hurt. You know, the time and dedication that they gave to that process, it's truly been transformative. I think it was an amazing opportunity that they took by working with me and other performers to create a document called the Model Bill of Rights or the Performer Bill of Rights and the guidelines for guest directors. So for them to really kind of outline uh, these are the ways to safeguard performers, crew, how to address power imbalances, how to resolve conflict. As with any job, the safety and comfort of the workers should be at the fore. The Performer's Bill of Rights that Rufi created with Erica Lust is a step in the right direction for ensuring this. When done right, porn has the power to do more than just get us off. Porn should never be a substitute for sex education, but as we've already heard, we do pick up things along the way while watching, sometimes for the worse. So what would it be like if we had a better resource for learning? Lena is part of Sex School, a project intentionally playing on this intersection. Sex School is a project of explicit sex education for adults. It was conceived uh, by Anarela Martinez. She got together with porn director Poppy Sanchez and then they just had this idea of creating educational themes that are explicit. We had a group of uh, performers and the idea was always to combine the knowledge and experience that we have as porn creators, film producers and sex workers and to bring them together also backed up with the formal knowledge that as uh, certified sex educators have in order to create films that are explicit but that can also be delivered in ways that are fun, that are approachable. At least like what we feel that we do with, uh, with our work is that we create something that is fresh, that uh, can be easily understood, and if not, that it's also accessible, you know, for people to enter into dialogue with it, to say what they think, to be a little bit more open about their experiences and so on. Earlier in the series, we spent an episode talking about young people's sex education and the impact that pornography can have. So it's important to emphasise that this is a form of sex ed designed for adults. Observing people having sex as an adult can teach us loads about our sexuality and desires. For many of us, porn is a part of sex, and some of us will have had our sex lives shaped in some way by pornography. And while there are problems to be discussed in relation to the industry, we need to be able to have these conversations first to begin changing things. There's a lot, a lot of things that you can say through pornography. Pornography as such is a medium for expressing ideas and views about the world, about politics, about bodies, about sex, about sexuality, about uh, identity. 
the potential that you can have with such a medium, you know, to say things in ways that no other medium has the capacity of saying. So for me, that's precisely the most frustrating part about like people not putting the right value into pornography because you are missing a lot. You are missing so many ways of uh, expressing ideas, so many ways of being political, you know, because I do think that pornography is like deeply political and many, in many ways it causes a, of why like there's so much stigma around it is because of that power, political power that you can have like through pornography about what kind of ideas you can express through it. And on a good day, I think that creating porn or being in dialogue with porn or like seeing or doing work that you really feel compelled with or that you really feel that has a strong message, it's ah, <laughs> it's what makes all the odds uh, worth it. It's what it's like, okay, yeah, now I remember <laughs> everything's so difficult, but this is why I'm still here. Woo, okay, I'm still not still not regretting this. Let's continue and let's see how things go. Hey lovelies, In Touch is going to be taking a one week break as I am currently recovering from COVID. Coming up on the next episode. I'd love to hear one thing you fucking love about being gender non-conforming. I get to wake up every day and I get to think to myself, this is who I am and I am living truly as authentically as myself. My main message is it's really impossible to separate out sex and gender. When I first started being a drag king, and I think it's true of a lot of drag kings, I didn't think it was going to be, but it turned into a way for me to explore my own natural gender expression. In Touch was hosted by me, Ruby Rare. It was produced by B. Duncan with executive producer Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistants were Rory Boyle and Mars West. This is a Broccoli production.